Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we go to Tucson, Arizona to discuss tracheal intubation in COVID-19. Insights a year into the pandemic. Yeah, hi, my name is Jared Mosier. I am an associate professor of emergency medicine and medicine at the University of Arizona in Tucson. Jared, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast with us. We interviewed you about a year ago uh, when COVID-19 first broke out in America, and the big concern was regarding tracheal intubations and the risks. So maybe you could set the stage for our audience and uh, discuss, you know, why is intubation so important to understand in COVID-19, and what were the big challenges we faced at the beginning of uh, 2020? Yeah, it it seems like forever ago now, and knowing the stuff that we know now, it's kind of hard to remember what our mindset was at the time. But at the time uh, when COVID-19 started hitting the United States and we started thinking about how we're going to handle this, remember we were set with knowledge that tracheal intubation in critically ill patients is one of the highest risk procedures that we do, high cardiac arrest rate, very high desaturation rate. Uh, high hypotension rate, combine all those things together, increases your risk uh, three to four-fold of a cardiac arrest. Uh, so that was what we were set with. Then, you know, a decade's worth of work on pre-oxygenation using advanced modes of pre-oxygenation like BiPAP and high flow uh, to prevent the risk of desaturation and cardiac arrest. Then COVID-19 hits, and the only knowledge that we had at the time was that uh, from the SARS-1 epidemic or pandemic uh, from 2003, where we knew BiPAP and the studies that looked at um, uh, how they treated respiratory failure in SARS-1, we knew that BiPAP had like an 80% failure rate. High flow didn't really exist then. And that there was a big transmission risk uh, to healthcare workers in the hospitals taking care of SARS-1 patients. The assumption was that there was transmission from uh, BiPAP, patients on BiPAP, to the healthcare workers. So there was a big fear of uh, transmitting this virus, COVID-19, or transmitting the SARS-CoV-2 virus to the healthcare workers caring for this big surge of patients. And from there led uh, many of the society, or almost all the societies, recommended against using BiPAP for these patients. SCCM, I think, recommended using uh, high flow in these patients. But again, there's, there was really no data on what the risk with high flow was. Uh, and then there, the other side of the coin was the more conservative route, which was, look, we don't know about the aerosol risk of these uh, modalities. Delaying intubation is going to lead to a higher failure rate, given the 80% failure rate that we saw in SARS-1. So when patients get to the point where they start needing more advanced amounts of oxygen, i.e. that that sixth liter, then we should intubate them early, uh, which carries the risk of blowing through all your ventilators quickly. That's kind of where things were the last time we spoke was, uh, do you use high flow and BiPAP to try to prevent intubation? If you are going to intubate them, how do you use them for pre-oxygenation? Most people would say you probably shouldn't at that time. Uh, versus intubate early once they're on their sixth liter of oxygen to avoid risk of potential aerosol transmission into the uh, environmental uh, room so that you don't contaminate healthcare workers. 
I think you've described the, the so-called fog of war of the early COVID-19 pandemic really well. <laughs> um, so let's uh, go into a couple of those um, uh, the, the issues that you brought up. So as of now, um, what is the data for uh, the so-called delayed intubation versus early intubation? Uh, where should we be going with the intubation uh, timing? Yeah, that, that's a good question. So um, what we do know is... It, if you take all cause respiratory failure and and COVID-19 kind of fits within uh, how ARDS behaves, but if you take all cause hypoxemic respiratory failure and you look at preventing intubation, it looks like CPAP, BiPAP delivered through a helmet has the, the most benefit. And then face mask BiPAP versus high flow, this was a paper published in JAMA, I think uh, around May-ish, uh, high flow versus BiPAP through a face mask are roughly the same. The most benefit comes from uh, using a helmet, which we, of course, don't have available to us in the United States, except one company was given an EUA by the FDA to use it for COVID-19 patients. Now, the studies that have been published specifically on COVID-19, looking at BiPAP versus high flow, there is a range of failure rates anywhere from 25% to 70% failure rate if you go on one of those therapies. So how would you uh so what would your options be in terms of uh, if you had a patient with covid-19 in front of you and and what struck me most about these patients is uh, i mean they were described as happily hypoxic and they they could have stats in the 90 but they're on the cell phones they're chatting with people but they're breathing at 35 40 when have you decided to intubate them or what would you recommend yeah, well, I guess in order to answer that, can we tackle the aerosol risk? Uh, part yeah, of let's it? do that. It, so one of the things, if you remember, I think I actually said this in the last podcast, but the last time we spoke, one of the things I said was that our first priority should be to figure out what is the risk of aerosol transmission with with BiPAP and high flow. Um, there have been a few studies. We actually did one right after uh, we were on that podcast where we looked at you know, there are some studies that show dispersion distances increase when you use high flow or BiPAP, but nobody ever looked at what the aerosols produced were compared to standard therapy like six liters nasal cannula, which would be the threshold where we were saying you should start intubating people. So we, we and I think a couple of other studies have looked at this in different ways. We took a couple healthy volunteers, randomized to various settings, various PEEP settings on CPAP, various flow settings on high flow, and then used particle counters to figure out what is the aerosol production. And we found that although the dispersion distances do increase, the actual production of aerosols is similar to standard high flow or standard nasal cannula six liters. So that kind of brought those modalities back into the fold, both for pre-oxygenation with airway management and for treatment of their respiratory failure to try to prevent intubation. So with that as the context, here, here's what I do. So we we don't use BiPAP here. Um, I have this sneaking suspicion, and we, which over the last couple of years, with all the data coming out on what happens to people with hypoxemic respiratory failure on BiPAP, that BiPAP, BiPAP may be intrinsically injurious through amplification of transpulmonary pressure. And this is this has even been shown in a couple of recent studies in the Blue Journal where if you put somebody on BiPAP and their work of breathing comes down, 
then they do okay. But if their work of breathing doesn't get reduced, then their risk of mortality is higher. That's probably through amplification of transpulmonary pressure, uh, mediating self-inflicted lung injury. So that's the worry for, for me and most of my colleagues here about putting somebody on BiPAP. That risk seems lower if you have somebody on high flow because you're not breathing on positive pressure. Lower but not zero. At the trade-off of maybe you don't get the same support that you would get if you were on a helmet or a face mask, BiPAP or CPAP. So what I do is if I think somebody is one of one of these patients who is just hypoxemic and they need oxygen uh, and they're not dyspneic, I will put them on high flow and I'll see if I can improve their oxygenation, reduce their work of breathing. And I tend to follow the ROCKS index, even though that's that's really only been developed and validated for the OptiFlow, and we have Vapotherm here as our high flow. But the concept is the same, that if you're on a bunch of oxygen to uh, maintain a, uh, an, a normal oxygen saturation with a high work of breathing, then you should probably be, probably be intubated. So the, the ROCKS index, you know, is the, the SF ratio over the rest rate rate. So the, the main variable that I monitor is their rest rate rate. If they're on 40 liters, which is the maximum for a vapotherm, and they're taking 100% FiO2 through that vapotherm to do that, and they're tachypnic, that person is very likely to fail and needs to be intubated. So it's kind of a long-winded answer to your question, but that's how I do it. Great, and, and that's a good, good uh, explanation. So in terms of high flow, um, what are the long-term effects? Because we've had some patients who have been on high flow indefinitely, um, and yeah. they end up being in the uh, – I've received consults from uh, floor patients, and it's like, how long has the patient been here over uh, the last uh, four or five weeks, and they're still on high flow? <laughs> and what? And they're not tachypnic, but they've kind of. When you look at the CAT scan, they've had this chronic process that's ongoing, and the concern is that maybe long term they're going to have be a so-called respiratory cripple with the fibrosis. So, when do yeah. you say, you know what, I need to pull the trigger and do something different? Uh, they've already received several courses of steroids. Uh, they completed the course of remdesivir um, four or five weeks ago. Have you encountered this, and what's your response to dealing with it? Oh, oh yes, I've encountered this. And now the caveat to the answer is this is all speculative um, because we, I think we all are seeing this and none of us really know exactly what to do. Uh, I have a, you know, if you're breathing 100% oxygen through the vapotherm for three or four weeks, there probably is some consequence to all, to all that oxygen. That's a lot of oxygen. Uh, and so I wonder if there's some oxygen toxicity that comes from that breathing that long term. Uh, independent of what COVID does to your lungs. But to answer your question specifically, what I try to do is, you know, if I get the patient admitted to me on high flow early on in their respiratory failure, I, I'll give them 24, 48 hours to settle out on high flow. And if they have not, then I will intubate, I'll try to intubate them earlier rather than later. What I find is if you do that, once you get them on the ventilator, it's much easier to manage them, as opposed to the patient that you're describing who spends two weeks rotting on high flow. Then you intubate them, and now their lungs are stiff and non-recruitable and very hard to manage. So oftentimes what I'll do if I get a patient who's sent to me who's in that stage of the disease where they're fibrotic and, and they look terrible, I'll try to just ride it out on high flow knowing that once I put them on the ventilator, it's going to be very difficult. 
Yeah, it gets tricky because um, most of these patients are on high flow are laying on their back. And one of the benefits yeah. of putting a patient on a ventilator is that you can prone them and uh, prevent uh, the lower, not low, low, but um, uh, the lower aspects of the lungs when you're laying flat uh, from uh, getting fibrosis. Um, there's some new data coming out on uh, uh, proning patients when they're awake. Um, and I think that's still uh, uh, pending. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I, I think that there's probably some benefit to improving their saturation by improving their VQ mismatch when you lay them prone, awake, spontaneously breathing. You know, I don't know that the actual benefits to prevent intubation are there. My suspicion is that we just like the saturation that we see when they're prone rather than when they're on their back. Because if you're spontaneously breathing, you should be opening up those bases, whether you're on your back or, or prone. So so I don't know. I, I know I get the intent. I especially prone everybody when they're on a ventilator. But I don't know that we are getting the actual benefit that we think we're getting when we have somebody awake prone. Yeah, we definitely need to wait for the data on that. So let's go back to this issue of, um, I mean, you've discussed the importance of risk of aerosolization and that the data show that it wasn't as high as we initially were concerned about. Now coming down to the risk of cardiac arrest. So as of now, um, what strategies would you employ when intubating uh, your COVID-19 patient to prevent cardiac arrest? Um, any new data that's come out to show benefit or to show harm? Yeah, so what I do is I'll pre-oxygenate them the way I have always pre-oxygenated them now. So most of these patients, when they have, when they need to be intubated, they're already on high flow or BiPAP, for example. And I'll just keep them on that 100% oxygen and, and see what kind of oxygenation I'm dealing with. If they are one of those patients who has a PO2 of 40 or 50, and they're maxed out on high flow, then I know if I proceed with RSI in that patient, I'm probably going to be in trouble um, because I have no oxygen reserve there. In those patients, I'll intubate them awake uh, with a flexible endoscope and topicalization, knowing that I have all of the PPE available to, to, the, to myself and my team that we need. If the oxygenation that I have after pre-oxygenation is acceptable, then I'll proceed with RSIing those patients. And I'll keep the high flow on throughout the laryngoscopy for uh, apneic oxygenation. Oh, if they, I was just going to say, if they have not been assigned to high flow or BiPAP already and they're just coming in and their worker breathing is too high and they need to be intubated right away, what I'll do is I'll either pre-oxygenate pre with them with a non-rebreather or if their worker breathing is really high, I'll take the ventilator, put it on a bag valve mask, and pre-oxygenate them up with that using a little peep before I proceed with RSI. And in terms of positioning, I think you mentioned this in the last podcast, the importance of positioning the patients, especially given that a lot of these COVID patients at high risk were morbidly obese and male. Yeah. I keep them upright, so I ramp them as much as possible, 30 to 40 degrees. Great. Um, and then um, in terms of drugs that you select, um, these COVID patients tend to have acute kidney injury. Um, are there any uh, drugs that you prefer in terms of um, paralyzing them or in terms of sedating them uh, when you're doing a procedure? 
Yeah, I like Atomidate for, as my main sedative for all, almost all of my intubations. In terms of paralytic, I've pretty much moved away from succinylcholine altogether because there are just too many reasons not to use it and no real benefit over rocuronium. So I use rocuronium almost exclusively. Now, in these COVID patients, you know, we just mentioned there's a, they sit on the floor for a couple of weeks on high flow or they've been at home laying around for two weeks before they come to the hospital. Many of them have acute kidney injury. Many of them have this kind of low-level hyperkalemia. All of those are reasons not to use succinylcholine and just go straight for rocuronium. Now, one of the things I have been doing is uh, if if I can guarantee that my IV is working, if, if the nurse tells me it's a rock-solid IV, and if there's like a second IV that in case something happens I can use, I've been pushing the rocuronium before the atomidate so that the onset time is uh, just about exactly the same. So you don't have that period where the patient's apneic but not yet paralyzed. That period's only 10 or 15 seconds, but it can be consequential. Gotcha. And then in terms of um, medications, so the atomidate's great because it has very uh, minimal effects on the cardiovascular system. Um, some people are using propofol, some people are using Versed um, as adjuncts. So any caution in doing that? Well, the risk uh, is hypotension, obviously. So the, the RSI dose of Versed is the same as it is for Atominate. So that's 20 milligrams of Versed, which is can be quite uh, hypotension-inducing. And same with propofol. The, a lot of these patients are volume-depleted, <clears throat> have acute kidney injury. They're at risk of hypotension anyway, and then to give them a venodilating drug can often make that worse. Gotcha. So what uh, therapies or interventions would you strongly caution our audience against using when uh, performing endotracheal intubation? Well, the first is the, those boxes. You know, remember a year ago, everyone was wanting to build these barrier devices to prevent aerosol transmission. And I always thought those were a bad idea because if you've got your arms in this plexiglass box, and you do run into dif difficulty and you need to mask ventilate the patient or put in an LMA or get a different device, how are you going to do that safely with your arms inside of a box uh, in a, in, under the stress of a rapidly desaturating patient? There, those things were being produced in mass numbers. And now people have looked at what is the aerosol risk of those boxes. And it turns out that their risk might actually be higher than if you don't use one at all. Those armholes act like a jet to blow aerosols right directly towards you. So I would. Yeah, you were recommending um, like a, like blankets or um, uh, not blankets, but uh, sterile sheets. Uh, uh, I think in the last podcast, are you still using them? Uh, no, we're not using those at all. We were using those for extubating patients, but we've since just gone back to doing what we ha have always done. Uh, and we have the PPE, and we were, at a, for a time, moving people into negative pressure rooms to extubate them. Extubation is more aerosol generating than intubation, but we have found that in the setting of the appropriate PPE, it probably is more risk to transport the patient you know, through the hall, down the hallway to a negative pressure room just to extubate them. Great. So we've gone away from and then any other interventions or therapies in relation to drugs or uh, procedures or equipment that you would say, you know, maybe hold off on that and just go back to the basics? Everyone is sort of recommending using video laryngoscopy to keep your face a little further away from the patient's face when you're intubating. 
that's the only other thing I would really caution against using. Uh, other than that, I would say we need to go back to doing exactly what we were doing before with advanced pre-oxygenation, evaluate who needs to be intubated awake, use the appropriate uh, equipment that we have available to us, and, and in the setting of appropriate PPE. Yeah, it's amazing what a big difference PPE can make. And uh, oh, here, uh, <laughs> when we realize, you know, maybe we should have just been doing what we we're doing all the time. Um, Jared, <laughs> so let's discuss. Uh, uh, there's obviously still room for improvements and um, certain um, concepts and uh, therapies that may still be available to us. What um, studies are you looking for, or you'd encourage other investigators to do uh, to answer pressing questions regarding intubation in COVID-19 patients? Well, it's not specific to COVID-19, but in terms of all critically ill patients, our big threat right now is cardiac arrest. And just at, at SCCM yesterday, there's the preliminary results from the Intube study that were presented, which was a big multinational uh, study that showed the hypotension rate was astronomical in ICU intubations, ICU and emergency department intubations. We knew that it was high. This study seemed to indicate that it was much higher than we previously thought carries a high cardiac arrest rate. And so what we need to do is figure out how can we reduce that risk. Now, I we talk about giving a fluid bolus preemptively or having norepinephrine in line or using bolus dose pressors. All of that seems like it's a bit of an oversimplification. There have been a couple studies now, one in the ICU done by the Semler group at Vanderbilt, and then one in the anesthesia literature that have both shown that just indiscriminately giving a fluid bolus prior to induction doesn't reduce the, the hypotension rate that you get with intubation. And that makes sense. You know, Why would it be that simple when you're taking into account the just the effects of taking away somebody's endogenous catecholamines with the sedative plus the the uh, vasoactive component of the drug plus what happens when you put somebody on PEEP plus the hemodynamic consequences of just stopping your spontaneous breathing and all of the VQ mismatch that comes from that. All of that stuff together becomes much more complicated than we want it to be. So, of course, it, it makes sense that a fluid bolus just indiscriminately wouldn't help. But we need to solve that problem. We need to figure out what is the best approach to improving somebody's hemodynamics to avoid that risk. So one of the methods, as you alluded to earlier, was to use drugs that decrease, uh, they, they don't drop your vascular tone as much. Um, and yeah. some may say, well, let's uh, make sure that we've got a bag of norepi uh, on standby or even start it off at a very low dose if we know that we're at a borderline level. Um, what uh, Would you agree with that? And what other uh, adjuncts would you advocate for? Yeah, I, I'd like to have norepinephrine around. I think, you know, for a while we were all doing bolus dose phenylephrine to try to recover hypotension. That doesn't seem like the best way to do it. So we have been using norepinephrine. And, and you know, the patient that you have that has a heart rate of 130 and their systolic blood pressure is 80, it's no real mystery that that patient's going to get hypotensive. So, of course, you're going to have norepinephrine around. The patient who has a heart rate of 100 and a systolic blood pressure of 100, neither of those numbers really tingle your spidey sense. But that's a shock index of one. That patient is a very high risk of post-intubation hypotension. And so you have to move your, the culture of your hospital from, even though this patient does not appear to be this sick, 
And yes, it's going to be a pain to get the norepinephrine up from pharmacy or mix it at the bedside or pull it out of the pyxis. That patient, that, that norepinephrine could potentially change the outcome of that patient, even though they don't appear to be that sick. So that's, that's you, what I do. Yeah, and then you mentioned the importance of having a really good uh, peripheral IV. Um, and some people do, uh, initially when they're waiting for their central line to be inserted, they'll do uh, infusion of norepinephrine through that pe- uh, peripheral IV. W- would you go along with that plan, or is, would you uh, insert a femoral line? Or It seems uh, sometimes very tricky to get in a, um, a central line in the upper part of the body when they're breathing so quickly and the risk of pneumothorax or shock. Yeah, for sure. I, I would use the peripheral line. The data has shown that it's pretty safe for you know up to 24 hours. So I would use the peripheral line without even batting an eye. Gotcha. Uh, same here. Um, and then what is the role of uh, PIC lines? Uh, the, 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 I found it interesting that some people prefer to use PIC lines in, in a really sick, uh, shocky patient. I've been struck by it takes uh, sometimes 30, 40 minutes to get that line in, and it may be compromising the care of the patient. Yeah, my gut reaction to that is if if you have time to get a pick line, the patient might not be that sick. Agree. Um, so, any other um, interventions or therapies that uh, require more research um, or that you're keen to hear about uh, in the next year uh, regarding intubation or intubation in COVID-19 patients? Induction, induction drugs, I think, are one. You know, there's we kind of have treated ketamine as the magic eraser for all of this in the past. That you know, if your patients hemodynamically unstable. If you give ketamine, then then they'll keep their hemodynamics stable while you intubate them. There have been a couple of studies in the last year that have shown that maybe that's not the case, that ketamine probably has more uh, hypotension effects than, than, say, atomidate. I think some of that stuff needs to get sorted out in the next year yeah. or two. Yeah, I agree. It, uh, I've seen a number of patients on ketamine uh, in the ICU, and it does cause some confusion in them. Um, Jared, I do want to be mindful of your time, um, and I uh, want to ask you, um, while preparing for this podcast, uh, were there any other um, uh, issues that came up that you felt that our audience definitely should know about, or that uh, any concluding uh, remarks that you want to leave our audience with? Yeah, I would just summarize with a year ago, we had no idea what the aerosol transmission risk was. We had no idea what the best way to intubate these patients was in the setting of this fear of healthcare worker transmission of the virus. We now have largely solved the PPE problem. We now know with with good certainty that high flow and BiPAP don't increase aerosol production. Combine those two together, we are pretty comfortable that the risk of of COVID transmission to the healthcare staff is low. And we should go back to pre-oxygenating and treating patients the way we did before COVID came along because we know those things reduce the risk of, of cardiac arrest. Now going forward, we need to tackle the, the hypotension problem and, and just do what's best for the patient. That's a great way to end it. And really appreciate you taking the time out of a, a really busy month to speak to our audience um, and wish you uh, all the best. Thank you, you too. I appreciate being on. A big thank you to Dr. Mosier, and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.